This podcast is available in video at fpcgolfport.org and fpcgolfport on YouTube. Roughly 2,000 years ago, there was a day. The day started just like any other day. If you had been out in the fields, the sun arose, the sun came up, the wind blew, everything looked normal. But it didn't stay that way. Give or take, somewhere between noon and 3 p.m., everything changed. Specifically, uh, on that day, the, the sky suddenly grew dark. And in fact, saying that the sky grew dark, that's a misnomer. It wasn't that the sky just grew dark. It was that the sun stopped giving its light. That the sun itself stopped giving its light. And as a result, darkness and probably an accompanying chill filled the landscape. And there on a hillside outside Jerusalem, if you had been listening, you would have heard a cry come out of the city. In the city, just as everything grew dark, in the temple there was a veil. There's a curtain that hung before the Holy of Holies. 30 feet tall, 4 inches wide. Substantial. And at that moment, the curtain, the veil, ripped in two. Unless we were to think that that was all, as significant as that was, unless we were to think that that was all, Scripture also says this, that at that same time the earth shook, the earth quaked, the rocks were split, and the graves opened, and many bodies of the saints were raised, who then went into the holy city and appeared to many. See, if you had been alive at that time, if you had been an eyewitness to the events that were going on, if you had been in Jerusalem on that day, you would have been left with this impression. That something important, something substantial, something significant had just happened. That something had happened that had changed everything before it. Now what was it? What, what was so significant? I'll bet you have a guess. I'll bet you have a guess. The Bible tells us that there was one man who knew right away. There was one man who, who knew right away. See, on a city, or excuse me, on a hill outside the city, there was a, a man. He was a Roman. He was a Roman centurion. A man who had participated, actually, in the crucifixion of the one we know as Jesus Christ. And as this centurion stood on the hillside, and as he looked out, and as it grew dark, and as it grew cold, and as the earth shook, and as the cries came out of the city, and as the dead were raised, as all that happened, this Roman centurion had a reckoning. He had a reckoning. And on that day, amidst all those activities, this man looked up at the man on the middle cross on that hillside. And he realized that this man's death was the cause for everything that he was seeing. And in that moment, he realized that the claims that this man made were true. And in that moment, he declared this. He said, truly, truly, this man was the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. In that moment, at least one guy firmly understood. There was probably others, but at least one firmly understood what had taken place. He knew in a sense that something had happened that had changed the whole world. Something had happened of such significance that nothing would ever be the same again. The author of the book of Hebrews is striving to make that same point in today's text. Something had happened that would change the world or that had changed the world in such a way as it would never be the same Again, the author of Hebrews knew that there was no going back to what had been. And that's what he's telling his Jewish audience. There's no going back. What has happened on Calvary, what happened when the tomb was opened, the stone was rolled away, what happened when Christ was resurrected, what happened when Christ was ascended, 
meant that there was no going back to what had been before. That upon the death, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ, a new era had been ushered in, and it has implications that affect us to this day. If you would, let's look again. Let's look at verses 1 through 2, and let's study those implications and try to figure out some of the significance, not only to the original audience of this letter, but to us as we sit in the pews this morning. Verses 1 through the first part of verse 2 say this. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days, these last days, which, spoiler alert, continue to today, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. You know, right from the start, right from get-go, right from Jump Street, as they say, God had spoken. Right from the beginning, think back to the creation account. You don't have to get very far at all into the creation account and you hear these words repeatedly. And God said, and God said, let there be light, and God said. God spoke right from the beginning, and when he was done speaking the world into creation, guess what? He kept speaking. Adam and Eve, before the fall, Scripture tells us they walked and talked with God in the cool of the afternoon. God spoke. God revealed. The first few chapters are filled with God speaking, and that sort of communication didn't stop after the fall. God would continue to speak. He would talk to men like Noah, he'd talk to men like Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, and more. And, and as he talked, it wasn't just casual conversation. Suppose he could have talked about the weather, but that's not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is he talked about things of consequence, he talked about his will and his decree and his plan and his intentions. He talked about all these things. God talked to prophets. God talked to kings. God even talked to bad guys. God spoke to Cain right after the fall. Belshazzar, others. God spoke. And at times when God spoke, everybody heard it. There was times on Sinai, everybody heard the voice of God, and they were terrified. There was times when everybody heard God's voice, and then there was times when he whispered into the ears of men. Like Elijah, remember he hears the still, small voice of God. The point is this, in various means, in various ways, God has spoken in times past through the prophets. Various means, various ways, God spoke. He spoke to the prophets, spoke to kings, spoke even to some of the villains of scripture. Now does that mean that they listened? Sadly, no. They didn't always listen. In fact, they didn't often listen. But nevertheless, the salient takeaway is this, that God is there and he's not silent. Sometimes in our day, we try to reduce him to this deistic God who's somewhere floating around in the ether, who occasionally, through some great megaphone, says something that affects us, and yet we tend to think of him as greatly distant. The God of Scripture is a God who regularly interacted, regularly encountered, regularly spoke, regularly shared things with his people. Now, that's what the author of Hebrews reminds us of in the first part of verse 1. God, in various times, in various ways, spoke to our fathers, the prophets. He's reminding us that this God is communicated. He's communicated often and frequently. He's told us what we needed to know. He's told us many cases what he was going to do before he did it. In times past, God has spoken. But this is the transition. This is the transition. In the first part of verse 2, he says, something has changed now. And he prefaces it with the words, in these last days. In these last days. In the days after the crucifixion. In the days after the resurrection. In these 
last days. God is still spoken, but He's spoken using a different and a better source. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. At times past, he used men just as fallen as you and I. At times past, he used some of the heroes of Scripture, some of the villains of Scripture. He spoke in various means. His words were even declared through Balaam's donkey. At times, God spoke in a lot of different ways. But now, with the coming and the arrival of Jesus Christ, he has spoken to us through Christ, through his Son. You know, if you were to attend a a scholarly conference, occasionally I've had the the privilege to go and older and and wiser and smarter heads than I, they come to the stage and and here's the thing, usually when they give you a handout and they say, all right, here's the conference and here's the speakers, there's some pictures of some of the guys who are speaking, but usually there's one guy, his picture is bigger. His picture is bigger, it's at the top and and he's what you call the keynote speaker. The keynote speaker is the one who, who speaks. He's typically the one that everyone has really come to see. He's typically the one who knows the most about the topic, who's the most well-versed in the subject matter, the most eloquent about what he's going to say. That's the keynote speaker. Now guess what? When the keynote speaker is done, the conference is over. When the keynote speaker has spoken, that's typically the end of the conference. You don't then parade a bunch of lesser guys out on the stage. Why would anyone stay for that if they heard the one guy? The keynote speaker is the one that ends the conference. That's the way it habitually is. Well, in similar fashion, that's what we see in verses 1 and 2. The guys with the small picture, they came. The guy with the big picture, he showed up, he spoke, and, and that's all we need. And God is not going to parade a bunch of latter-day prophets, or at least a bunch of latter-day individuals across the stage of this globe, as if they're going to say something that Jesus didn't. Something better, different, or the like. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. The keynote speaker has gone across the stage for several years. He spoke to everyone who would listen. He made sure that his words were written down, not just in one gospel account, but in four of them. His words are preserved for all these centuries since. He has spoken. Now let me ask you a question. Is what he has said enough? Is what he has said sufficient is the way that you you put it in theological circles. Is what he has said enough? Well, a lot of people would answer that by saying no. A lot of people would answer that and, and they'd say, well, we got some good information from Jesus and yet there is continuing revelation. We have a need for continuing people to tell us new things that help us in modern days and the like. A lot of folks are not satisfied with what Christ has said. What do you believe? Do you believe that what Christ has said is sufficient? Do you believe what Scripture has is sufficient? Or do you believe we should be continually on the lookout for new and additional revelations and that Bible then becomes a loose-leaf notebook that we can just kind of staple the additions there too? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is really the keynote speaker in his own story or is he just a middleman? Just someone who carries the baton a little ways until some other prophet takes it from there. Every major cult, every major cult in the past 2,000 years, and especially the past several hundred years, has gained its prominence by claiming some new revelation. By claiming some new revelation. Think Mormonism. Some new revelation that they might say transcends or supersedes what we got. But that's not the way it works. In these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son, And what is said is sufficient. No more prophets are required. Let's look at the last part of verse 2. last part of verse 2 says this. Whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. All right. After the author of Hebrews 
introduces God's Son into his narrative, into his letter, he begins here, the second part of verse 2, to give us his biography, his biography, so to speak. And unlike any uh, biography or any resume you might find, if you're browsing LinkedIn or, or something like that, unlike any resume of any prophet or priest or king since the dawn of time, this resume, what we're going to see here, this biography he's going to share with us, it's filled with things that no man could ever do, but only he who is divine. And the proof of that we see right there in verse 2, when it says that this one is he who made the worlds. You know, you could go online, you could scan the LinkedIn for resumes just endlessly for years, and you'll never find someone who lists that in his profile. He has made the worlds. If you do find someone who lists that, don't hire them. It won't turn out well. You know, as great as Moses was, Moses, if if you were to ask an Israelite of their day, or of the present day, tell us some of the heroes of the faith. Moses would probably be right near the top list. Elijah. Elijah would probably be right there too. They still set aside a seat for Elijah at the Passover meal. Men like Moses and Elijah would be the great ones. They would be the great ones. Well, as great as Moses and Elijah were, no one ever said that Moses made the world's. This claim is unique. Scripture says a lot of things about Moses. It never once says that Moses made the worlds. The author of Hebrews, who himself is a Hebrew, who himself grew up in the faith, is saying exactly that about the carpenter's son, about Jesus of Nazareth. This was a unique claim, and this upended the theological apple cart of their day. Let's look at what the first part of verse 3 says. He's not going to stop there. He says he has made the world, but that's not it. That's not the extent of the resume here. Let's see what else we see. Verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Let's stop there because that is absolutely filled with that information. Have you ever heard someone talk? Let's say you see a young boy, young man, young child or what have you. And you see this child and you see the father and you look at the child and you go... That boy is his father's son. You know anyone you can say that about? You know anyone that comes to mind when you say that? Now, when you say that, what you're typically saying is that the boy resembles the father. Perhaps it's physical. Perhaps they look the same. Maybe it's the way they behave, the attitudes. Maybe it's some of the foods they like or what have you. That boy is his father's son. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Things like that. Now, when you say that, you're identifying some similarities. However, when you say that, you are not saying that the Father and the Son are one. You're saying they have similarities, but you're not saying they share the exact same imprint nature down to a T. You're not saying that. You're simply saying that there are similarities. However, verse 3 is saying that about Jesus and his Father. Verse 3 is saying there is an exact likeness, an exact imprint, an exact nature an exact same substance that is shared between the Father and the Son. He's saying that they are the exact same. If you've seen the Father, you've seen the Son. Verse 3 says that Jesus is the express image of the Father. Depending on which translation you have in the pews, you might see that wording slightly different. Some translations say the exact imprint, the exact likeness, the exact nature. But the point is the Father and the Son, they're not merely similar. It's not that Jesus just kind of modeled the behaviors of the Father or that he was godly. You and I, hopefully, 
someone somewhere will say that you and I were godly. That would be nice to have someone say that when we passed, that was a godly man or a godly individual. But no one is going to look at us and look at our tomb and say that was God. That's the distinction. Jesus was more than just godly in the sense of being like God in his attitudes and affections and behaviors and the like. He was God. Again, you could not make a bolder claim. In our day, we just kind of, oh, okay. For us, we kind of take some of this for granted. They didn't take any of that for granted who received this letter. This would have absolutely rocked their world. Jesus is an exact likeness, exact not 90% similar, but the exact likeness of the Father. That's, that's his point. And then he goes on. Again, he builds and builds and builds on. He says things that could apply to no one else. He says this. He says, This same one who's in the likeness of the Father, expressed image of his person, this one also, also, as if all that wasn't enough, he also upholds the world by the word of his power. He sustains everything. Remember back in verse 2, he said he made everything. Now, that's, that's a bold claim. But now he also says that he sustains everything that he's made. Some of you uh, know I'm one of those people who became a fan in recent years of Bob Ross, you know, the painter and such. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are hooked on old Bob. Bob Ross, he does the paintings. He sits there, he's got the giant head of hair, and he paints in his soothing voice. It's just kind of nice and refreshing to watch that happen. Well, Bob Ross, when he paints something, he paints it. He does it in a half hour. I don't know how he does it. He paints it, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's majestic, and it's awesome. I love the paintings of Bob Ross. But then what happens? Well, they go on the shelf, or they go in a box. Years later, maybe they're auctioned off or, or sold to someone. Bob himself doesn't return to the work that Bob made. Bob himself is done. Bob made the work. Bob moves on. The thing goes on a shelf, goes out for sale. You might never even see it or touch it again. Jesus is different. Jesus is not Bob Ross. If you've been waiting your life to hear that claim, I guess you got it this morning. Jesus, Jesus is better than Bob, and he's better than Moses, and he's better than everyone else. He not only breathes things into creation, he not only speaks and they're there. Let there be light and there's light. He not only does that, but then he continues to sustain what he's made. The fact you take another breath is by virtue of this, that God sustains you as you do so. We, again, we take all that for granted. In our modern day, we think God, he took the world and he spun it like a top, did its thing, and he just stands and looks back from afar. But that's not what we see here. What we see is that God remains infinitely engaged with what he has made. He sustains everything by the word of his power. Once again, that's a revelatory statement by the word of of his power. Okay, let's look at our remaining verses beginning at the last part of verse 3. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. When he had by himself purged our sins, there's so much heavy theology. The author just kind of blows through that. Because everything else is so dense. When he had purged our sins, something that no one else can do. You can't even purge your own sins. You might pay for them, but you can't purge them. But this one who has purged our sins, when he was done, he sat down where? Did he sit down somewhere on the, on the back row of God's heavenly court? No. He sits at the right hand of God, a seat that is reserved for a son. Look at the throne rooms of antiquity. 
If it Greek, Rome, Babylon, any of these places, guess where the Son sat? To the right side of the Father. The Son, the King's Son, the King Himself, that's where He sits. Having been so much better than the angels, as He is by inheritance, inheritance through His Sonship, obtained a more excellent name than they. You know, if an angel were to appear right now, boy, that, that, would, that would be something. We'd all have something to put on our on Twitter today. If an angel was to show up, if an angel was just to appear before us, if an angel was to appear, that would be something else. But it would be more than we would expect. If an angel were to appear with all its radiance and all the glory, the glory reflected from God Himself, if an angel were to appear, even if it was one of the small ones, if there are small ones, even if an angel were to appear, it would not be like the little cherub on the Hallmark card. It would be something, someone, so striking, so radiant, so impressive, so scary, we would fall down on our faces in terror here in the pews. How do we know that? Because that's the reaction that men and women have always had when they've encountered an angel. If an angel were to appear, we'd be concerned. We'd be scared, perhaps. With that said, think about the angels. As impressive as the angels are, as radiant as they are, as much as seeing one would impact us and cause us to fall to the ground, as much as that is true, think of the angels. When the angels are in the presence of one greater than themselves, when the angels are in the presence of God, when the angels are in the presence of Jesus Christ, it is they who fall down. It is they who cover their eyes. Remember there are different pairs of wings with two Two of these wings, Scripture says in Isaiah 6, that they cover their eyes from the sight of the one on the throne. The glory of the greatest angel is nothing compared to the glory of Christ. The glory radiance of the greatest angel is nothing compared to the glory that, that radiates from the person and presence of Jesus Christ. And that's what the author is saying in Hebrews. You know, the funny thing about, about angels is that so often in our culture, we tend to like angels. In the 90s, so many of the Christian books were about angels and the like. Why do you think everyone liked angels? Well, I think people like angels because angels can help them or tend to help them. That's the thought. Angels will help me without judging me. But this one is a king. This Jesus is the king. And the author of Hebrews is saying he is greater still. Now, there's a lot of other doctrinal nuances that we could linger on in these four verses. But let's, with our remaining time, let's zoom out now. Let's zoom out now for a bit. Let's look at the big picture with our remaining moments. Irrespective of who the author is, earlier we mentioned that no one is 100% sure. There's a lot of good guesses out there. But irrespective of who the author of Hebrews was, we know this. He was a Hebrew. He was writing to a Hebrew audience. And he was trying to help them reconcile their existing faith and traditions and understanding to reconcile all of that, all the thousands of years of history, with what had happened on Calvary. He's trying to help them to reconcile what had happened in recent days with what had occurred in times past. Now, many of the folks that he was writing to, they, they might have had kind of this weird hybrid understanding where they looked at, at what had happened. I mean, the stories and the earthquakes and all that, that had had an impact on the society, no doubt. But what they may have done was simply said, well, this one, all the things happened and the like, but this one, it's a suggestion that he was a really great, really great guy. He was a great prophet and leader and the like. Perhaps he was sort of divine-ish, which is why some thought he was an angel. Dear my God, something, you know, something that had some spark of divinity in it. A lot of people were drifting into that mindset. And as they drifted in that mindset in Hebrew culture, it allowed them to keep all their previous practices. 
But the author is saying no. The author is saying everything is different now. Everything has changed. There's no more need for sacrifices in the temple. Why? Because you can't top the sacrifice that's already been given. All the years and centuries of sacrificing animals was intended to point forward like a neon sign to the sacrifice that happened on Calvary. The author of Hebrews will go on throughout the book to make that clear. They'll say, we don't need priest, a man who cleanses himself and then with great apprehension goes into the presence of God, who goes into the Holy Holies and the like just once a year. We don't need that guy anymore. What we have is a great high priest who is God himself, and he has now ripped the curtain in two. We now have direct access to the Father because of the Son. From top to bottom, the book of Hebrews, what the author is saying is that this Jesus is better and grander, more majestic, more awesome, more important, more critical, more necessary than anything that preceded him. All those things from temples and sacrifices and priests and the like, all those things pointed forward to him. And if that were true, then our need for all those things that were shadows and types is no longer relevant. They pointed forward to something and someone that were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we can never go back. We can never go back. Why? Because there's no need to. What we have is better. You know, the book of Hebrews is only 13 chapters long. In those 13 chapters... There's a word that comes up 13 times, and that's the word better. Better is the great, if you were to boil down the book of Hebrews to one word, that might be the word you came up with. The word better, because that's the author's emphasis. We have a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better Moses, a better covenant. Everything is better because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done. Now, theologically, I, assuming in our context here this morning, most of us have encountered that before. Most of us have heard this precept. Most of us heard a lot of what we're talking about this morning before. Theologically speaking, I don't assume most of this is new to everyone in the room. But let's spend our just last few moments asking this. If theologically we sort of get this, how about practically? What do you do with any of this in your own life? How do you apply any of this? Saying that Jesus is better, is that just a, okay, he's better. And then we boom. Move on. What do we do with it? Especially if we're hurting, we've got enough scar tissue on our back and enough hurts and pains and anxieties about tomorrow that we're lucky just to be here in church, let alone to draw any real conclusions out of it. What do we do with this idea of Jesus being better? Well, here's the thing. We are all in need of a, a lot more better. It's the least grammatical thing I might ever say. We need a lot more better in our lives, I would say. This past year has given us a sense that we could have a lot more better. We have hardships and sicknesses and illness and COVID and everything else in the world around us. From diseases to death to the deterioration, apparently, of a lot of our institutions, so much in the world around us is just in bad shape. Just in bad shape. And nowhere near as bad as it can get, to be clear. But still, still bad shape. I won't get political, but I will say this. The nation, the world's governments across the world, they're not as strong as they could be, somewhat weak. The leaders globally are not as strong as they could be, somewhat weak. 
The media, not just here, but around the globe, is somewhat weak. Our entertainment across the globe is somewhat perverse. Our hospitals are somewhat full. Our cemeteries are full. You know, I was thinking about this through the other day. Just about the only untainted thing in the world around is the only untainted thing I've enjoyed recently is a good po' boy. <laughs> so much of the rest of the life, you know, sit down, have that, and everything's fine for five minutes. But so much of the rest of the world around us has just been bad. A shrimp po' boy, to be clear. You know, in a world that strives for mediocre and settles for bad, which is often the way it works, and a world that's given us very little reason to think that 2021 is going to be any better, into that same world, all these centuries ago and still present in the day, is someone and something better. Jesus Christ is not like politicians of any party that have let you down in the past. Jesus Christ is not like any leaders, any pastors, any priests, any kings, any anybody that have let you ride down. Jesus Christ is not like anyone you've ever met before. This Jesus, on the one hand, he's stronger and more powerful, more mighty, more majestic than anyone else. And that alone would make him better. But he's also more gracious and more merciful, more loving than anyone you and I have ever met. You know, Jesus, when he came down to the earth, he could have gone just to a tall mountain and waited for us to climb up on our bloody kneecaps to him, but he sought us out when we weren't seeking him. If you're a believer, if your heart has been changed just because God sought you out, how cool is that? When you weren't looking for him, he came looking for you. This Jesus, he's, he's better. And no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, your future is better because of him. Your future, perhaps, in the present as you endure hardship is better. And then once you're on the other side of hardship, it's far better. If you hate death and disease and pandemics and all that and the like, you know, so does he. He came to defeat death. If you hate cancer, so does he. He came to give you a future beyond it. If you hate crying tears of pain and fear and anxiety, so does he. He came to wipe these things away. Jesus is better. And this morning, the author of Hebrews says, you need something better. You and I are inclined to turn to something lesser. You and I are inclined to turn to our friends, neighbors, spouses, children, parents, what have you. And all those things can and should be a blessing in our lives. And yet, you and I need something better. If you vest your hope for the future and what any politician is going to do, what any country, any nation, any king, prophet, priest, and the like, if you vest your hope in that it will ultimately prove insufficient. You need something better. And as the author of Hebrews has said to us this morning, one better, one better has come. You need someone who not only has the power to help you, as has been demonstrated in this morning's text, but who truly wants to help you. This morning, if you sense his hand outreached for yours, take it. Take it and don't look back. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.